This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. They haven't gone and done a very good job about protecting public health, but they've done a very good job at using the quarantine to bring 5G into all of our communities and to shift us all, to begin the process of shifting us all to a digital currency, which is the beginning of slavery. Because if they control your bank account, they control your behavior. And we all see these advertisements on television saying 5G is coming to your community. It's going to be a great thing for all of you. It's going to change your lives. It's going to make all of your lives so much better. And it's very convincing, I have to say. Because I look at those ads and I think, that's great. I can hardly wait till it gets here. And then, because I'm going to be able to download a video game in six seconds instead of 16 seconds. And is that why they're spending $5 trillion on 5G? No. The reason is for surveillance and data harvesting. It's not for you and me. It's for Bill Gates. It's for Jeffrey Zuckerberg. And it's for Bezos and all of the other billionaires. Uh, Bill Gates says that his satellite, his satellite fleet will be able to look at every square inch of the planet 24 hours a day. But that's only the beginning. He also will be able to follow you on all of your smart devices through biometric facial recognition, through your GPS. You think that Alexis is working for you. She isn't working for you. She's working for Bill Gates spying on you. And the, the pandemic is a crisis of convenience for the elites who are dictating these policies. It gives them the ability to obliterate the middle class, to destroy the institutions of democracy, to shift all of our wealth from all of us to a handful of billionaires to make themselves rich by impoverishing the rest of us. And the only thing between them and our children is this crowd that has come to Berlin. And we're telling them today, you are not going to take away our freedom. You are not going to poison our children. We are going to demand our democracy back. Thank you all very much for fighting. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. That is the face and the voice of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., one of the greatest men in the world right now. And it is an absolute pleasure to welcome to welcome you, Mr. Kennedy. Thank you. Thank you, you very much. Thank you for having me. What will it take to bring you to South Africa to follow in the footsteps of your father from 1966 so that you can come and speak at the universities around this country? Oh, I would love to come to South Africa. Um, just invite me and I'll come. I, I, it's just a matter of timing, but I will, I promise you I will be there. Of course, it means you you might have to come before the mandatory vaccines. 
Yeah. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. It's it's nine o'clock here. So I've got something Irish to drink, and I know that you will appreciate it because of your Irish heritage. Yeah, well, I do. I Unfortunately, I had the Irish flu, so I don't drink anymore. I haven't had a drink in 38 years. Uh, but cheers. Yeah, well, you know, what Roosevelt recognized that fear is the chief instrument or oppression that's been used by tyrants from the beginning of time. People lose uh, their capacity for critical thinking when they're fearful and they will give up their freedoms. If people get scared enough, if you can scare people, they will give up their freedoms and they will, you know, they'll, they'll act in a kind of a biological impulse to embrace that, you know, with a, these kind of um, uh, tribalistic, uh, um, Retivistic uh, um, impulses that are hardwired into our brain during the 20,000 generations that we were wandering the, the African savanna as a race, um, following a strong leader, living in fear, um, vilifying and, and fighting other tribes and, and outsiders. And um, and then embracing orthodoxies and cosmologies that, that reinforce unit cohesion and overlooking the faults of our enemies, of our friends, and, uh, and, and not doing that for our enemies. And all of those kind of um, hardwired biological impulses are triggered by, ultimately by fear. And people revert to that. And they also, you know, this whole idea about um, following a strong leader and doing what you're told and following people with authoritative voices without asking questions, just sort of blind obedience, blind faith, are all these impulses that are naturally triggered by fear. And that's why every totalitarian state in history has always pointed to an enemy and said, whether it's Hitler with the Jews or with the Poles or the Czechs, you know, he he said, somebody's coming to get you, and I am the only one with the genius and the strength to protect you. And of course, the scariest thing is germs, because uh, germs can get into everybody's household and kill the occupants. And so it's just it's something that is I the the promoters of the biosecurity agenda beginning around 2000 recognized that, you know, Islamic terrorists, it can be used to frighten people. But in reality, are we really going to continually hand over huge amounts of our GNP to battle a, an enemy that is killing fewer of our people annually than lightning strikes? And they recognized from the beginning that the people who were kind of promoting the, the you know, uh, the, to, these totalitarian controls recognized that a much better, a much more durable and convincing um, enemy is germs. And three weeks after 9-11, we had an anthrax attack on our country. And it turned out, and we blamed it on Saddam Hussein, and we invaded him. It turned out that when the FBI completed its investigation that that anthrax came from a U.S. military lab. 
And it was, and the FBI concluded that it was somebody associated with the United States military that had sent that anthrax out specifically to the people in the United States Senate who had opposed the Patriot Act. Um, and, you know, to Tom Daschle, to Patrick Leahy, the big, the most vocal uh, antagonist to, to the police state. And uh, it was, you know, if it did come from somebody who had, who was, who had malice um, and, and who had that kind of plan, they couldn't have planned it better. Mm. Oh, uh, and Tony Fauci ended up profiting from that attack because at that time the military under the Geneva Convention and under regulation and guidance that we had in the United States, the military was largely uh, restricted from developing biological weapons. But the health agencies could develop dual-use technology. In other words, technology that if they could justify it by saying that we're using it for vaccines, they could develop uh, gain-of-function organisms that were that could be used as biological weapons, and so the military began pouring a billion, one point six billion dollars a year into Tony Fauci's operation, and he became kind of a, he really became part of the military at that point. People ask, you know, why would he be doing these reckless, crazy experiments? particularly after President Obama ordered him to stop in 2014. And he moved his, you know, his Frankenstein experiments out of the United States and he started doing them at the Wuhan lab offshore where there was very little oversight and he was laundering the money through Peter Daszak, you know, this kind of bioweapons grifter who was also taking money from our intelligence agencies and from the Pentagon who were doing their own gain of function in the Wuhan lab. And people say, well, why would Tony Fauci be doing that? Well, obviously it puts the world in danger of the very pandemic that he was warning everybody about. And one of the reasons for that was that he had a huge budget commitment wrapped up in his capacity to say every year, to, the, to his military sponsors, I'm doing the kind of, you know, uh, military defense, bio biological defense research that you have asked me to do. So, you know, that, and that's one of the stories that I tell in my, uh, in my new book, The Real Tony Fauci, mm should be on the stands in, in a few weeks. We also don't really want to support Bezos, so we'll try and find a, 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 a non-Amazon <laughs> outlet. Well, uh, Barnes & Noble, there's a number of places you can order it from. Or you can order it from your local bookstore. Your uncle was assassinated and your father was assassinated a few years after that. That's incredible stuff. And my, my uncle, of course, President Kennedy, was assassinated in 1963. And my father was assassinated while he was running for president just after he won the California primary in June of 1968. When I talk about fear, I talk about the use of fear as a weapon, which is what Roosevelt was warning about. When Roosevelt said that, 
the, the world was in the middle of really of an existential crisis. Democracy mm. and capitalism were under attack all over the world because of the Great Depression, which was a global depression. And you had a number, you had different nations reacting to that crisis in different ways. You know, a lot of them were abandoning democracy and uh, and going to the left and and, mm. and turning to communist regimes. And then, you know, in, in Spain and Germany and Italy and other countries, people were going the opposite way and endorsing and embracing fascism and nationalism and in the united states the, the majority of people in the united states at that time thought that capitalism was dead mm. and democracy was dead and about almost half the people in our country were looking at other alternatives and there was a there was a, a third of the country was uh, following huey long of probably 20% of the country was following Father Coughlin and the Communist Party had exploded in the United States. The Fascist Party had exploded in the United States and people were offering different futures for America. And that's when Franklin Roosevelt told our country, you can't be scared because mm. if you're scared, people are gonna manipulate you. And what we need to do is to be still steer the course, we need to rebuild capitalism, which he did with my grandfather's help. He appointed my grandfather as the first head of the Security and Exchange Commission. And together they saved Wall Street. Wall Street never forgave them for it. You know, the big elites were always angry at them because they rebuilt Wall Street by rebuilding public faith in it. So that small investors were willing to go back into investing. Mm. And the big investors, the Morgans, the Whitney's, the Carnegie's, um, you know, hated my grandfather and hated Roosevelt for that because they were taking power away from the elites and giving it to the middle class. And um, and Roosevelt really saved, he, he steered this middle course and he saved democracy in America while it was collapsing all over the world. And the way that he did that was by giving confidence to Americans that, you know, we can't get it into fear. Now, if you contrast that to what Tony Fauci did from the beginning, which is, and Bill Gates, mm. and, the, and the mainstream media, which are all, you know, uh, in the thrall of the pharmaceutical industry, they relentlessly drummed up fear by obfuscating, by obscuring the data, by always being unclear about the data and using what the little data points that they had to, uh, to fortify their narrative. Mm. And it was a narrative that everybody is vulnerable, everybody should be terrified, um, we, we're gonna lock you in your homes and we're gonna induce this kind of, this, this condition called Stockholm Syndrome where captives are going to put the whole country under house arrest. And we're going to induce this, this condition where, where captives become grateful to their captors, where they believe they empathize with their captors, and they believe that the only way to safety is through total obedience to, to their captors. And we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to inspire those that kind of fear and use it in that way. There's a famous 
experiment that was one of the CIA MK Ultra experiments back in the 60s and 70s. And it was when MK Ultra at that time, which was the CIA program where they were figuring out how to manipulate individuals and populations using drugs, using torture, using hypnosis, and using all these mm. mass manipulation and propaganda techniques. And their objective was to figure out strategies for going into indigenous countries, sowing confusion, uh, collapsing economies, destroying social relationships, and then imposing centralized control. And they were doing that on an individual basis and on a larger basis. They had about 149 universities in the United States that they were paying to do these experiments. And one of the experiments at that time it was a famous experiment that was, I think it was in 68, 69, called the Milgram Experiment. And it was, it was a, uh, a Yale uh, doctor named Stanley Milgram, psychologist. He wasn't a medical doctor. But he recruited people from every walk of life. He recruited people who were Americans, who were construction workers, who were middle class, people who were students, professors, uh, Republicans, Democrats, etc. And he would take the subjects of his experiment and he would lock them in a room with a control panel where there was a dial where they were told that when they turned that dial, it would give an electric charge Jeez. to a man who was tied to a chair in the adjoining room. And they would hear the person screaming, pleading, begging, weeping. And they were being told by a doctor in a white lab coat, turn it up more, turn it up more. A lot of the people who were sending that, that the guy in the next room was a, an actor. So they weren't really electric, but they believed they were electrocuting somebody. And a lot of the people who were sitting in that room, the recruits to the studies were crying themselves and saying, I don't want to do it. Please don't make me do it. And the doctor would tell them, do it. And 67% of them turned the dial all the way up to 450 volts where it was marked potentially fatal. And what they concluded from that, Dr. Milgram concluded, and everybody can look this up, it's called the Milgram Experiments, it's Dr. Stanley Milgram. What he concluded is that the voice of authority, particularly somebody uniformed like a doctor, could override people's personal conscience yeah. and their deeply held values. Yeah. And today yeah. what we have in our country is we have a doctor who is Dr. Fauci who never cites any science. And, but he tells people, put on a mask, do lockdowns, take these vaccinations, mm. you know, mandate them, tell on your neighbors. Um, and, and, vilify and scapegoat and marginalization and all the little techniques that they use that are well-tread-worn techniques of totalitarianism and they and uh, and they're doing what they're told and they're they're allowing this guy and even you know joe biden is listening he's like a, he's deified one of the one of the leading medical journals in our country two weeks ago published an editorial saying it should be a felony to criticize Dr. Fauci. <laughs> Dr. Fauci, Dr. <laughs> Fauci you know, encourages this kind of deification of himself. 
he says he he made a proclamation a couple of weeks ago that anybody who questions him is anti-science because what he's saying is science. And by the way, I've had I've had over five hundred lawsuits that I've been involved in. You know that I've I've tried, including the Monsanto case where I was on the trial team recently. Two point two billion dollar verdict. All of these cases, you have the top experts in the country who are working for Monsanto, people from Harvard, Yale. And we have people from Harvard and Yale on our side who are experts who are looking at the same data and saying something completely different. So anybody who thinks that science is is listening to experts, you're just wrong. Experts disagree on every aspect of science. And, and you know, in a democracy, we have to question everything that experts mm. say. Um, but we've allowed this doctor to demand censorship of Americans, which is now occurring at a, a rate that we've never seen before, where you're literally not allowed to criticize public policies. You're not allowed to criticize pharmaceutical companies on the media or the social media. They closed churches in our country for a year without any public hearings, without any public comment, just a, a diktat closed all the churches. Meanwhile, they kept the liquor stores open as essential businesses. The churches are in the Constitution. The liquor stores are not. The, they shut down jury trials so that if some, if the large corporation, pharmaceutical company injures you or reckless when they're you know providing you mandated zero liability countermeasures, you can't sue them for any reason. No matter how grievous your injury, no matter how dishonest they were, you cannot sue them. Um, they shut, they closed a million businesses. We have property rights in our country. We once did. It said you can't shut down somebody's business without just compensation and due process. There was no due process. There was no just compensation. They didn't shut down the businesses. Um, we had, you know, so we've had the abolition of jury trials, of businesses, of, of due process. These, it's government by diktat rather than government through regulate the regulatory process where the public's involved and there's public hearings and notice and comment. None of that has happened. All of the, you know, the the, the amendments to the, our Bill of Rights have basically been ab obliterated over the past year on the word of one doctor. And it's just a, a milligram experiment writ large. It's not only your country, Robert. Uh, South Africa is precisely the same. And I would guess pretty much the whole world. Isn't it weird that the entire world is listening to that same doctor? Yeah, it is weird. But, you know, one of the things that I uncovered in researching the book is how they did this, how they did this kind of this lockstep imposition of totalitarian controls in all the democracies in the world, all exactly simultaneously. And for many years since 2000, they have been practicing it and drilling it in a mm. series of about 20 simulations. And a lot of people read about the 2001 simulation that Bill Gates put on called Event 201. And it happened in October 2019. At that point, coronavirus was already circulating in Wuhan. And they were modeling and drilling in that particular one. It was high level people who virtually all of them moved into government 
as soon as coronavirus hit, but it was the same people, the head of the CIA mm. and NSA, and they were all involved in this event to a one, and they were modeling, and the biggest pharmaceutical company, Johnson & Johnson, was there, George Gao, from, uh, head of uh, the Chinese CDC. So they have people from all over the world, and they're drilling... And the thing that they were practicing in Event 201 is how to shut down the social media, how to impose censorship in the social media, and ironically, how do you stop people from acute, from saying that the, the coronavirus, which was also the subject of 201, was laboratory generated? This was before anybody even knew it was circulating. Mm. Nobody had known it, and they were drilling at that moment in October of 2019. Anybody can look this up. Look up at Event 201. You can see the videos. Yeah. yeah. And they spent a whole day talking about how do we shut people up when they say the virus is laboratory generated. Well, that was one of them. There were 20 of those. They involved hundreds of thousands of people, including all the, um, the world leaders, People from every, virtually every country in Europe um, participated in these, and there were high-level people like Madeleine Albright and Senator Sandon who were leading each one of them, so that gave up an imprimatur of authority. Mm. Every one of those, and there were CIA people designing them, writing the scripts, etc. And it was odd if you read them, because what they're drilling is not a medical response to a medical emergency. Yeah. It's a police state and militarized response to a medical emergency. They're asking the question, how do you use a pandemic to impose permanent police state controls on democracies, to obliterate Bill of Rights, to obliterate constitutions, and how do you do that? And, because, and you know, one of the functions of these uh, simulations was to introduce these ideas to to world leaders who otherwise would have abhorred this kind of action. But, but what they were doing again and again, as I said, there were hundreds of thousands of people that were first responders from all the different states, the province of Canada, all over Europe. These were secret simulations. We've only gotten the transcripts of them recently, and they're in my book. And there were um, high-level leaders from every, all of the European countries and all of the Western nations. And they were getting together and again and again drilling. Here's what you do when there's a pandemic. You bring in the police, you bring in the army, you forcibly vaccinate people. And nobody asked the question, you know, if we actually have a therapy that works for this, yes. why would we need to force it on people? People will run to get it during a pandemic. Yes. Um, but they, they weren't telling people there's no discussion of how do you build immune systems, how do you take vitamin D, how do you isolate the sick, how do you protect the vulnerable, how do you keep businesses going, how do you preserve constitutional rights, how do you make sure people are exercising, losing weight, building up their immune response. There's none of that kind of talk. Yeah. It's all about the day the thing starts, you start imposing police state controls. And, you know, and by the way, there was no inevitability. People, you'll hear this again and again, that, you know, pandemics are inevitable. We had the 1918 flu, and eventually the next one's going to hit, and it's going to wipe out humanity. But that's not true. 
Yeah. Pandemics, there is no record of pandemics affecting, dramatically affecting um, societies that are have good nutrition and good clean water. Even the 1918 flu, which is the big bugaboo that they scare everybody with, that was not, we now know that that was not even a virus. It was a, and the guy who did this study, ironically, for Lancet in 2008 was Tony Fauci, where he showed that the 1918 flu, they, they went back and they took lung samples from all the soldiers who had died, and every one of them, there was no virus. It was bacteriological pneumonia and meningitis. And today you can knock that out in four days with yeah. antibiotics. Oh, but in terms of viral epidemic, there is no inevitability to them. They had to you know, make one in order for this thing to happen. And then they had to scare the heck out of everybody because this was a virus that was killing old people. It all might, you know, the average age of death, I think, in the United States was something like 84 years old. And so, you know, but they had to scare every generation, everybody, and they had to exaggerate everybody, exaggerate, exaggerate the risk. They had to hide therapeutic drugs that could have ended this pandemic overnight, like ivermectin, like hydroxychloroquine. They had to stop people from using those in order to, you know, make this, uh, in order to justify the totalitarian controls and the authoritarian regime that they have brought down like a darkness on the entire democratic world. Well, you know, environmental advocacy, at least the kind that I was doing, was all about democracy. It was about using the courts to make sure that there was a democratic process. The, the environment is the commons, it's the commonwealth. These are the assets that cannot be reduced to private property ownership. The air, the water, the wildlife, the fisheries, the public lands. You know, I got into this by representing commercial fishermen in lawsuits against polluters. Mm. And then, you know, we built a model which is the riverkeeper, waterkeeper model that worked on the Hudson and restored the Hudson River, you know, which went from a national joke into an international model for ecosystem protection. The Hudson now is the richest waterway in the North Atlantic. It produces more pounds of fish per acre, more biomass per gallon than any other waterway in the Atlantic Ocean north of the equator. It's the last major river system left that still has strong spawning stocks of all of its historical species of migratory fish and the miraculous resurrection of Hudson inspired the creations of all these other now 360 other river keepers in 46 countries where the were the largest and fastest growing uh, water protection group in the world mm. but it was all about democracy and you know how do we use the law to protect public rights and a resource and you're fighting against large private corporations that are trying to privatize those public resources, usually using pollution, and you know to dump their their crap for free somewhere. And so we would sue them and say, "No, that doesn't belong to you. That doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the people of the state of New York." That's what the Constitution says. And um, but you know. The model was always the same in every country. It was always large corporations that captured the regulatory agencies that were supposed to be protecting the public from those companies. 
Um, the, the regulators themselves became sock puppets for the industry that they're supposed to regulate. And you had then, you know, industry and government working in tandem to rob the public. So when I got into, you know, when I stumbled into the vaccine space, it was all very familiar landscapes to me because I could see there's, you know, these pharmaceutical companies own Dr. Fauci, you know, NIAD, his, his agency is just an incubator for the pharmaceutical company. It doesn't do medical research unless there's a profitable endpoint to it. It does drug development. And he was, you know, he had become the major advocate for the pharmaceutical model. Our public health had gone into the toilet. We, we went, when he came into office in 68, the chronic disease level in our country was 6%. Today it's 54%. That's on him. Um, and it's because he never measures, he never uses the metric, am I making Americans healthier? His only metric is, how many drugs can I sell this year? And he's made us the most pharmaceutical dependent. We pay the highest prices. It, it, you know, his drugs and the other pharmaceutical drugs are now the leading, third leading cause of death in America. And so I felt like I was on very, very familiar um, ground. It's the same principles in the law and, and also the same, you know, um, evolution that we call regulatory capture. It's about public health, about public rights, um, and about, uh, you know, and about corporate power and the subversion of democracy by powerful entities mm. that are trying to liquidate everything for cash. They're trying in the environmental realm, they're looking at the green landscapes and saying, we are going to, you know, liquidate those for cash, we're going to treat the planet as if it were a business in liquidation. We're going to convert the natural resources to cash, and we're going to privatize mm -hmm. them. We're going to make uh, a. We're going to have a few years of pollution-based prosperity, and we're going to pocket the proceeds, and we're going to make a few people billionaires um, by impoverishing the rest of us. We're going to raise the standards of living for the elite by lowering the quality of life for everybody else. And we're going to do that by escaping the discipline of the free market and forcing the public to pay our costs of production. And it's the same whether you're in the, you know, the medical and public health space or whether you're in the environment. It's about big corporations capturing government in the enterprise of liquidating landscapes and humanity for cash. And it sounds it sounds so conspiratorial, but it really is. It absolutely is. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly there are people who are acting in concert and out of malice. And people who know, and Tony Fauci is one of those. Um, and I don't like to look into other people's heads, but, you know, I have spent enough time researching him and seeing the, uh, the contradictions, mm. you know, the, where he'll say one thing to one audience, one to another audience, where he's constantly dis dissembling and obfuscating and lying. And so it's very, very clear that uh, for him, it is deliberative. Um, but, you know, there's all kinds of 
conspiracies oftentimes become kind of orthodoxies. And when yeah. there's big institutions, when there's large institutions involved, um, you get people subsumed into those conspiracies that really are, you know, mean well. And, you know, I'm thinking of kind of the, many of the pediatricians and doctors yeah. who actually think that they're doing the right thing. Um, they're not acting out of malice, they're acting out of ignorance. And there's, you know, it, I think the best metaphor is the Catholic Church and the pedophile scandal. Uh, you had roughly three or 400 priests who were raping children. And, um, but everybody got involved in it. You know, the, the Monsignors were moving them, the bishops, the archbishops, the cardinals were, you know, moving them around and protecting the church. Uh, and even the Vatican, and not only inside the church, but also um, the whole social structure at its fringes, the prosecutors, the police, the press, were all involved in the cover-up to protect the institution of the church. They were willing to sacrifice these children as collateral damage. And the same thing is true of the vaccine enterprise. You're not allowed to talk, say bad things mm -hmm. about it because then, you know, there'll be catastrophe, supposedly. And so even if people are watching children die and people become paralyzed and all these terrible outcomes, they keep their mouth shut because they think, oh, the, the enemy is out there at the gate and, you know, we're on the inside and we've got to uh, continue to protect the institution, even though... You know, the institution itself is betraying its central mission, which is to protect children. And, you know, what Jesus said about children is that anybody who harms a hair on the head of one of these, it would be better if they were never born. It would be better if a millstone was tied around their neck and be cast into the ocean. And, you know, and so the Catholic Church is supposed to be protecting children the same as Tony Fauci is. But, you know, they ended up being the opposite of that. And, it, and you can say it's a conspiracy, um, but, you know, what does that word mean? That word yeah, is pejorative. It's a pejorative. Um, and and there's almost a question is, do conspiracies really exist? Yeah, well, of course they do. Of exist. course they do. So, uh, just, to, just to add to what you were saying, um, Andrew Wakefield was on my podcast recently, and he's he's a, a great example of how the industry decided to to clamp down on a dissident, on somebody who expressed uh, actual concern and real genuine science. And and he he became enemy number one. Yeah, well, that's what they do. You know, if you actually look at what Andrew Wakefield did. Mm which is, you know, in his 1998 Lancet article, all he did was say, look, we looked, there were 12 authors of that article. They're leading doctors in England. And they all said, we looked at these 12 children. What that article was about was it was the first, and that article, by the way, has been cited all over the world and is now accepted science. The, the, fulcrum of that article was that it was the first time in history that somebody had linked a gastrointestinal ailment to a psychiatric problem. 
And what they were saying is, we looked at these 12 children who have profound gastrointestinal problems and they have severe autism and they appear to be linked. And that's what that article was saying. And now in the, in, in a, essentially what was a footnote to the article, uh, they said, by the way, eight of the mothers who of these children said the same thing, which was that they believed that their child had gotten that injury from a measles vaccine. And they, and so they say, we're just reporting that. This is what eight of the mothers said, and, and this should be investigated. And that is all that Andrew Wakefield said. And uh, and that's what destroyed his career. And, you know, they, that, that, at that point, it, most people don't understand the, the close relationship between all of these institutions and the medical cartel. Yeah. And in England, the power of GlaxoSmithKline, which is essentially, you know, an arm of the British government, and the control that it exercises over the Lancet, over the British Medical Journal, over Elsevier family of publications, and over the, um, the medical, uh, what we would call the, you know, the, the medical boards that do licensing. Um, and all of those were in essentially in cahoots. And if you follow the money, you can see the money trail between all of these really, yeah. uh, you know, these major institutions that nobody has any reason to mistrust. In fact, they're extremely corrupt. And to further add to that, uh, you, you wrote the foreword for um, Judy Mikovits's incredible book, Plague of Corruption. And again, further evidence of how corrupt the scientific fraternity has become. Well, NIH particularly, if you, you know, people say, well, how could Tony Fauci be a bad guy? He's been for 50 years at NIH. If you, you know, if he was really a bad guy, somebody would have fired him. But that's just the opposite is true. Everybody at NIH, I'm going back to the, one of the best, the greatest female scientist, arguably in American history, um, Bernice Eddy, who discovered the, uh, the poliomyelitis virus and who, um, and who made a series of other astonishing discoveries. Her career was absolutely destroyed when she found, she discovered that there was a, uh, a cancer-causing monkey virus in the uh, polio vaccines, 93 million polio vaccines that were given to my generation. And now we're, you know, my generation has these epidemics of soft tissue and bone cancer, which are exactly the cancers that this, this, this uh, monkey virus is used in labs around the world now to induce tumors in, you know, rodents and, and in lab animals. If you want, you take this, this XMRV virus or the, you know, the, the, uh, the monkey virus that Bernice Eddy just um, found it and give it to a, to a guinea pig, it causes them to sprout tumors. And that virus was in every polio vaccine. And so, and she alerted, you know, her bosses to it and they uh, took away her office. They, they put a new lock on her lab so she couldn't get in. They put her in a basement office and they drove her out of the agency. Uh, John Anthony Morris, another 
a brilliant scientist who for 40 years ran the flu program at NIH. He also said, hey, the flu vaccine doesn't work and it's causing these profound neurological problems. He was later proven right, but they destroyed his career. So, And you can go on and on and on. Yeah. Judy Mickett another one. But anybody who challenges pharma in that agency is, is destroyed. And uh, the way that Tony Fauci has survived in that agency for so long is by carrying water for pharma. And also not just pharma, but all the big chemical industries and the food processors and all these other uh, in industries that, you know, our kids have our kids now swimming around in a toxic soup, the sickest kids in history. 54% of them have chronic disease. What is going on? Well, I, you know, I think the, um, yeah, I think if you read my book, you'll see what's happening, which is that, you know, this has been scrupulously planned, meticulously planned for years through these simulations. And you're seeing that, you know, essentially a coup d'etat against democracy uh, globally. All, you know, the simulations, by the way, were called Operation Lockstep. They were very open about what they were doing, which was to train government officials all over the world to react to a pandemic, the next pandemic, which, by the way, they were breeding bugs to make them the next pandemic, to make it inevitable at a, at a shoddily constructed mm. uh, laboratory run by the you know, People's Liberation Army of China and the Chinese Communist Party um, with a broken air, negative air system and a broken sewage treatment system that was absolutely guaranteed to, uh, to release one of these you know, pandemic viruses that they were creating into the environment. So, um, and, and meanwhile, as they're cooking up, the, you know, in their Pandora's box in, in Wuhan, uh, they're cooking up these, you know, pandemic superbugs. At the same time, they're, um, they're drilling again and again and again. Here's what you do when one of these things gets loose. You yeah. clamp down police control. So, uh, you know, I, anyway, I, I urge people to get the book. Yes. I don't make any profit. It all goes to Children's Health Defense, and but we need to drive it onto the global bestseller list. So please, uh, please dial in today. How can okay. we battle this? You know, everybody's got to resist at this point. And for many years, you know, when people ask me, how do I fight this? I never asked people. I never said to people, you need to come out publicly because the consequences of doing that were so horrendous. You know, people would lose their jobs, their livelihoods. I knew many, many actors and professional athletes and others who were kind of willing to mm. do that, but I never told them because I didn't feel like it was my place. But I think now we are right at the edge of losing everything that we value. And we need to make the same sacrifices that you know, our country, you know, people fought for during the American Revolution. They put their livelihoods at stake, their property and their lives. And they to give us the Constitution and the Constitution is now effectively abolished. And it's time for this generation to step up. So we have to resist on every level. We have to, you know, not do what we're told um, and to resist, and particularly when it comes to vaccinating children, 
there, there could be a justification for an adult getting a vaccine. There could be. Um, but there is zero justification for giving it to a healthy child. A healthy child there. That Johns Hopkins just published a study that, that says there's no record anywhere in the world of a single healthy child dying from this, from COVID. Oh, you know, you cannot give them a vaccine, an intervention that had a hundred percent injury rate when it was tested in phase one trials and 21, you know, uh, a medical intervention required in the high dose, 6% in the low dose, where kids are dying now from COVID, from the vaccine, who would have never died from COVID. And clearly the vaccine among certain age cohorts is going to cause far, far, far more injuries and deaths than COVID-19. It is child abuse. They give it to a child. It is medical malpractice. Do not let them give it to your children. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? I don't uh, do predictions. <laughs> I, don't, I don't worry about the future. <laughs> I really don't have any control over anything that happens other than, you know, the little piece of real estate inside my own shoes and what I'm doing right now. And I know I am going to, you know, I'm going to go down fighting if I have to go down. I'm going to go down with my boots on. But (laughs) it's really up to, um, you know, the the results are in God's hands. We all Mm. have it. A job to do and we need to get up every morning and say reporting for duty sir and then go you know to war and how the war ends i cannot predict i can only tell you that i will be on the side on this side of fighting as long as i am drawing breath say so that you are an absolute gentleman and god bless you and thank you for your time thank you very much and we'll see you on the barricades my name is Jim. This is Jim Wolfe. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.